in all the services, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, where people can insert AI into weapon systems to make them more effective. Get your feet wet. Get your feet wet with articles in professional journals. It is fiction, but it shows you how decision-making in the military is entering the public's consciousness. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Captain George Galderisi, U.S. Navy retired. George is a former naval aviator, author, and director of strategic assessments and technical futures at the Navy's Command and Control Center of Excellence. He'll be talking with us today about emerging and leading edge technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, how the U.S. Army can leverage them, and how to be an effective writer and communicator. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us, sir. Well, it's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share our views. And by we, I mean um, my colleague, Dr. Sam Tangredi at the Naval War College and, and our work in um, AI and uh, also writing about future warfare. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's why we're so excited to have you today is that uh, phenomenal paper. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. And sir, you, you served for three decades as a naval aviator and officer, but you've also been a prolific writer uh, of both fiction and nonfiction. And you've done best-selling work for Tom Clancy's Op Center uh, and on the book Act of Valor. Can you tell our audience a little more about your background and how you went from being a distinguished naval officer uh, to a best-selling author? So uh, two words, really, Luke. Good luck. Um, I'll take you way back to my first tour in the Navy. I was um, in a, uh, a search and rescue unit where we uh, flew the, the ancient UH-2 Charlie uh, helicopter for playing guard on the Navy's training carrier, uh, USS Lexington. And we were, I mean, we were not mainstream Navy. We were kind of a sidebar to full up Navy ships and, and squadrons. And I remember sitting in the, in the wardroom after a meal and, and looking at the coffee table and there were all these books like... Um, uh, Naval Institute Proceedings and Naval War College Review and other professional magazines. And I said, wow, this is what the this is what the grownups are writing. This is what the people uh, on the varsity team are writing. So, um, you know, as I evolved in my career, I started writing uh, articles uh, for professional magazines like Proceedings and uh, War College Review and eventually Joint Forces Quarterly and others. And then, um, you know, there's an old saying, you um, you make plans and God laughs. Um, I uh, took a course uh, in my graduate degree about uh, one of the courses was about the law of the sea. I got very um, interested in that. It's the biggest treaty ever assigned. Started writing articles that evolved into a couple of uh, nonfiction books. And then, um, and I hope he's not a drinking buddy of yours. Uh, my, my best friend in the world is, uh, is a guy named Bill Blake, who's a very successful screenwriter. And he was visiting here in Coronado. We were watching the most wretched Steven Seagal movie you've ever seen. I mean, it was all kinetics, no plot, you know, bodies everywhere. And I said, uh, hey, Bill, you should write a screenplay for something better. And he said, well, you should write a novel. 
And I went, well, I don't write novels. I write articles for professional magazines. And you know how it is when a friend is kind of pimping you. Um, you know, he kind of encouraged me and poked me and held my hand. And, and, and that's how I came to do my, my first novel, um, The Coronado Conspiracy. And then, it, you know, it led to, to many others. So I guess the, the, the point I make to, to new writers is just live your life. Um, there, uh, and we could talk more about that downstream. But that's kind of how I became um, to write as, as many books as I have. And, and the other secret that not many people can claim is, uh, is I take golf. So uh, now that my kids are grown, you know, what do you do on a Saturday morning? There's no t-ball games. There's no soccer games. You know, you just, you know, kind of closet yourself and, and, and write. So, yeah, that's kind of a long winded way of telling you where I am now. And writing's my passion. It's what I what I uh, love doing. And, and it's when I'm really in flow, like I'm not thinking about anything else. Well, you do a fantastic job at it. And uh, we won't tell Steven Seagal, proclaimed mad scientist, what you said about his work. Oh, there you go. I appreciate that. Well, let's talk about one of the pieces that you wrote then. Recently, you wrote something, uh, you know, very incisive paper with the aforementioned Sam Tangretti at the Naval War College on how the U.S. Army can effectively leverage leading edge technologies. Can you tell us more about that venture and what led you both to author this hard hitting piece? Yeah, I sure can. Uh, you know, first of all, I think it's it's very people in the Army and the Marine Corps are very close to this, that um, with all the um, conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were losing a soldier or a Marine uh, at a very high rate in fuel convoys, uh, fuel and, 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 uh, and water convoys. And so, you know, that's a very simple technology uh, where AI and machine learning can be inserted into platforms that usually take human drivers and, and actually save lives. We looked at it from where's the low hanging fruit? You know, there are people who have great ideas about big data, AI, machine learning, and they're very, very, very futuristic. Uh, where Sam and I are coming from is in all the services. And again, we're closest to the Navy requirements, but in all the services, there's a lot of low hanging fruit uh, where people can insert AI into, um, into weapon systems to, um, uh, to make them more effective. Um, and, and, you know, we think there's a compelling need to do so. In that vein, and, and I really enjoyed reading the piece, what are the biggest takeaways that you want service members and policymakers to have after reading this paper? Between Sam and I, we have well over half a century of active duty service. So we think in operational terms, even though I'm in a place right now where I am I'm very technology focused and he's someplace where he's very policy focused, but I can speak for the Navy specifically. Uh, several years ago, our, our uh, Navy leadership said, you know, we need to um, insert AI and machine learning into our systems. And uh, I believe our CNO teed it up this way. He said, bring me, he said this to his senior leaders, bring me um, five training areas where AI and machine learning can help and bring me five corporate business areas where AI and machine learning can help and bring me five operational areas where AI and machine learning can help. And, um, you know, Sam and I don't want to disrespect those first two bullets, but our point is that there are so many things where AI and machine learning can make the operational services better that um, that's where our focus should be. I'll give you one small example. My, I spent my last five years on active duty uh, as chief of staff for a carrier strike group. And uh, for those not familiar with Navy carrier strike groups, you have a flag officer in charge, a one or two star uh, on the Nimitz class carrier, which is really our best technology in the Navy. We have something called the Tactical Flag Coordination Center, where the Admiral fights the strike group. When I left Abraham Lincoln strike group, we had uh, 
three officers and five sailors on watch 24-7 when nothing was going on because each person sat in front of one screen and did one function. And now that I've been exposed to the kind of technology that um, we work on at, at NIWIC Pacific and others, I can say, wow, we can do so much better. We can have fewer people do it and we can make better decisions faster with fewer people and fewer mistakes by just getting the low-hanging fruit and um, using some of these technologies. As a former intelligence specialist who sat in subplot right next to TFCC, I concur entirely uh, in, in what has to be done in order to streamline that um, and the kind of still kind of analog process that we had taking place with that. I think we agree. we're simpatico. So you mentioned that you're very technology focused. So you seem like you're more open to autonomy than maybe a lot of other career aviators. Do you think the human pilot still has an innate edge over machines? And what were your feelings after DARPA's alpha dog demonstration? Yeah, well, I hope this doesn't sound like a, a wimpy answer, but I, I think the jury's still out. I, I mean, I think we are just at the, uh, the ragged edge of um, assessing what a human uh, pilot can do versus what a machine can do. I know DARPA's, uh, DARPA's experiment got a lot of work, but I think where uh, Sam and I are coming from is this notion of uh, human machine teaming. And to take that back a little bit, when um, uh, Bob Work was Deputy Secretary of Defense, he was um, instrumental in ushering in something called the third offset strategy. And for those not familiar with it, if it's third offset strategy, it begs the question, again, this is all in the paper that the people could access downstream. Uh, the first offset strategy uh, occurred um, in the Eisenhower administration when, uh, again, particularly for those of you in the Army, we were uh, catatonic about the Warsaw Pact, pushing 350 divisions uh, through the Fulda Gap and overwhelming Western Europe. So we came up with tactical nuclear weapons. Well, the Soviet Union eventually caught up and in the 70s, we came up with the second offset strategy, which was a precision strike, ISR, networking, those sorts of things. Um, and we never took on a Soviet army in that, but we did take on a Soviet trained and equipped army in Desert Storm. And you know the results of that. Well, eventually our adversaries caught up and now we had the third offset strategy. So where I'm going with this is the core technical aspect of the third offset strategy is man-machine teaming. And that is really the essence of where at least I see the Navy going with this. For example, uh, we have the uh, P-8 aircraft, our, our surveillance aircraft, that's the, um, the follow-on aircraft to the P-3. And we also have the Triton unmanned aircraft, uh, which is similar to the Air Force's Global Hawk. And so man-machine teaming, we are still evolving how that manned platform and that unmanned platform can work together to have it be greater than um, the sum of the parts. And similarly, in, in my world, helicopter world, we have the H-60 aircraft, the Seahawk, uh, teaming up with the Fire Scout uh, UAV. And you know how those evolve is, is really better than the sum of the whole. And, and again, if I had to point to one writer who uh, Sam and I both admire, who was kind enough to do a chapter in our book, uh, Paul Scari, uh, he wrote the book, Army of None, uh, which explains the robot revolution, particularly in the, in the ground forces. So yeah, I guess long-winded way of saying it, using the both together 
is always going to work out better than using just one or the other. Yeah, that's an interesting um, an interesting experience we've learned through uh, some other mad scientist initiative things that we've done before. Where I think they I think it's still referred to as uh, centaurs or centaur chess when you have a human and a computer counterpart. Uh, the two of them together have always shown that they're better than either one of them on their own. Yeah, and Matt, you're I think you're channeling Paul Scarry because uh, one of his articles uh, was centaur warfighting. So, uh, so I think that's you're, you're on exactly the same uh, the same wavelength. And we're we're big fans of Paul's here at Mad Scientist, the uh, proclaimed Mad Scientist, Paul Shar. I think he's proclaimed, right, Luke? It was early before we did them. I'm not sure. Yes, it was uh, back at GTRI because uh, I believe that's when we proclaimed uh, August Cole as well. You know, sir. In addition to being a retired naval aviator and a best-selling author, you're also the director of strategic assessments and technical futures for the Navy's Command and Control Center of Excellence. And I think this shines through a lot when you and Sam uh, were bringing kind of the importance of decision-making to the forefront when we were considering the role of AI in the future of warfighting. So what, what role does AI play in command and control? And how concerned are you with AI kind of gone haywire, so to speak? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great and probably a critical question. So, so again, uh, I told you my background from active duty. Uh, I, I showed up at the nine week Pacific. Uh, we, we have many predecessor names. So uh, it's like alphabet soup. So I won't go there, but when I showed up there and coming off this, off this experience at a carrier strike group where you could imagine eight people on watch at a time around the clock, it just eats through your staff and, and crushes them. And I saw all these technologies um, that we had like multi-butter watch station, knowledge wall, knowledge web that help people make better decisions faster with fewer people and fewer mistakes. And, you know, I said, wow, this is going on every ship in the fleet next week. Right. And, you know, they patted me on the head and said, you're, you're the new guy, you don't get it. But you know there are things uh, that don't defy the law of physics that are fairly low cost that can help warfighters make better decisions. And uh, just to walk it back into the paper, which which I encourage people to read, uh, if you look at uh, decision making, uh, I think where that took a big step forward was in the Korean War uh, with Air Force Colonel John Boyd, who came up with the OODA loop, which which stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And Boyd's theory was that if you could get inside the enemy's de decision loop, and again, it applied for him to fighter tactics, but it's more broad now. If you get inside the enemy's decision loop, you could defeat that enemy in, in, uh, in fighter conflict. And uh, now it's been moved forward and, and people are, it kind of uh, went out of vogue for several decades, but it, it's been embraced again. But if you think way back to a movie that, um, uh, most of us in the Navy remember very well, those of us of a certain age, called the Bedford Incident. Um, it's a story about Soviet uh, submarines being hunted by U.S. destroyers. It, you know, it was right after the Cold War, right after or during the Cold War, right after the uh, Cuban Missile Blockade. And the scenario is that the captain of the U.S. destroyer is being very aggressive, trying to hunt for this Soviet submarine, not to sink them, but just to corral them. And uh, he's wearing the crew out. He runs over the submarine snorkel on purpose. It's a very high tension situation. And then um, someone asked the captain, well, are you going to take the first shot at the submarine? And he says, no, but if he fires one, I will fire one. 
Well, an exhausted ensign mistook that as the captain's order to fire an ASROC missile at the submarine, which sinks the sub before, but not before it shoots a nuclear torpedo, it sinks the ship. So that's 1965. It is fiction, but it shows you how decision-making in the military is entering the public's consciousness. And even though it's fiction, it was eerily prescient, uh, as Sam and I apply on the paper, of something that happened uh, 55 years later when the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard uh, missile battery shot down a Ukrainian aircraft and killed almost 200 people. And again, that was a decision crisis where the um, missile battery officer couldn't get through to higher headquarters. He didn't have a clear picture of what was going on. So he made that error and people died. So it'd be easy to say, well, that's one fictional movie and that's one country with that's not as advanced as U.S. So that doesn't happen to us. Well, yeah, it does. Back in 1987 in the Arabian Gulf, uh, because he had incomplete information, uh, the captain of the USS Stark didn't think the aircraft approaching him was in an attack profile. It was an Iraqi uh, aircraft and it fired two Exocet missiles and killed almost three dozen of the crew members. One year later, with the memories of the Stark in mind, the captain of USS Vincennes thought the aircraft uh, was on an attack profile. It wasn't. It was a. It was an Iranian Airbus, and 270 people died. Fast forward to something that's uh, I'm sure well known to those of you in in the Army. Um, there were two Air Force F-15 Strike Eagles that shot down two Army uh, Blackhawks accidentally and killed uh, over two dozen people. More contemporaneously, the USS Greenville surfaced under the Japanese fishing vessel Ili Maru and uh, killed nine, uh, nine people, some of them students. And then even more recently in the Navy, uh, we had the collisions of the John S. McCain and USS Fitzgerald where a dozen and a half sailors died. So I'm not here saying that access to the right information was the only cause of those accidents, but we believe very firmly that the data to make the right decision was on each and every one of those platforms. It didn't get processed, it didn't get displayed. Uh, it didn't get analyzed and presented to the decision makers. So that's where we're coming from with how much AI and machine learning can help decision makers, not making the decision for them, but presenting them with logical um, alternatives. So those examples you use actually lead into my next question and will actually probably help answer it. You know, we at Mad Scientists have been accused in the past of maybe being techno optimists, and you and Sam may get that same treatment. Um, you know, putting too much credence in emerging technology or treating AI and autonomy as, as panaceas. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, well, thanks for that, Matt. I think, I, you know, I like to say we're techno-realist, not techno-optimist. So a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we read, uh, as I suspect you do, and, and many in the mad scientist community, because there's been um, really compelling evidence that uh, fiction is something we like to mine to help intuit the future of warfare. And I know mad scientists have supported that with people like um, P.W. Singer and August Cole, and now Admiral Jim Stavridis is coming out his book, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, in most of these fictional stories, the AI is perfect. It does everything you want it to do. It doesn't turn rogue. It's, and so we go like, well, yeah, not so much. So, and then we look at things like um, driverless cars. I mean, 10 years ago, if you were a betting person, you'd say, oh, man, driverless cars are going to be ubiquitous in 2021. Well, maybe not. Not so fast. So that's kind of the, the yin and the yang of it. So, um, again, where we're coming from is 
not trying to change the world with AI and machine learning, the military world, but just to go after the low-hanging fruit. I'll, I'll give you a, a one naval example, which I think applies across the services. We have the, as I mentioned earlier, the Triton unmanned aircraft. And for those of you not familiar with the Navy platforms, it's a derivative of the uh, Global Hawk uh, that's been used so successfully in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. At the current state of technology, uh, the squadron that operates the, uh, the Global Hawk is uh, based in Jacksonville, Florida, and the aircraft are flown out of Guam. Excuse me, the Triton and the aircraft are flown out of Guam. Uh, and right now, uh, it would take a Global Hawk 15, uh, a Triton 15 hours to fly from San Francisco to um, Tokyo. And the way it operates now is that operator sits in a windowless room with a joystick looking at empty ocean for 95 plus percent of that time. And where Sam and I are coming from is, is there are so many things that AI and machine learning can do to keep that operator from just being pulled into a slumber. For example, it can find a ship and say to the operator, hey, I found a ship. You can actually, you know, pay attention and look at what's going on. And then it can say the ship is either in a normal shipping channel or it's outside a shipping channel. It's doing something strange. And then it can examine its uh, AIS, its automatic identification system, which all ships over 1,600 tons have to have and in interrogate that. And it can look at the crew manifest, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all things that the AI and machine learning can do in very simple terms. And it can do that not just for the uh, reconnaissance mission, but also if you think about it in today's crowded electronic environment, if it finds something, it just can't willy-nilly send that back to the flagship. It's got to worry about uh, someone intercepting it. It's got to pick the right propagation path, whether it's HF or SHF or whatever. So again, lots and lots of low-hanging fruit that as technical realists, um, we think that AI and machine learning can uh, help the operational forces, not so much the, the back office stuff. That's a really good example because we looked at uh, when we've talked about AI in the past um, is not necessarily as that replacement for the human analyst, um, but rather freeing up analysts, warfighters, commanders to do what they do best. And so how can I take that monotonous um, and, and what we often talk about, dull, dirty, dangerous, how can I take that aspect of it away and allow them to do what they do best? And, and rather than getting kind of bored and mundane in that, and I've, I've, I've been that, that analyst looking at full motion video, it is not exciting. So, so how do we keep them engaged um, and allow them to use that contextual analysis to say something's not right here um, and have, have the AI assist in that? So I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and if it's okay to pile on, Luke, two, two points. Number one is, um, you know, having been that analyst as well, it's sort of the soft science too. You know, most people, all of the people actually, in the uh, Triton squadron were pilots in the P3 community. And now instead of flying on aircraft, what they came into the Navy to do, they're sitting in a windowless room. And you have to ask yourself, how long are these folks gonna stay in the Navy? I mean, it's just not that uplifting. Yeah, they're getting paid, but they can play a video game at home. The other thing is, since you mentioned the full motion video, uh, and as we point out in the paper, 
we in the DOD need to realize that the public has been stress inoculated to worry about AI and worry about killer robots. And you mentioned the full motion video, and I think most mad scientist uh, listeners are familiar with Project Maven, uh, which the Joint uh, AI Center uh, initiated several years ago. And the point of, of um, Project Maven was to take those hours and hours and hours of video and use AI and machine learning to look for what's important. Well, we all know what happened. Um, Google employees protested, thousands of them protested in a letter to their CEO saying, we don't want to be involved with killer robots, et cetera, et cetera. And Google acceded to that and stopped work on Project Maven. And in other webinars, I have heard uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, say that was a mistake. We, uh, we listened too closely to our employees and we should have stayed engaged. Because when you think about it, the public wants the DOD, if we have to shoot someone, to shoot the right person. And so without you know, knowing for sure what you're looking at, um, and, and again, in the stress of combat, sometimes humans make a mistake, the AI and machine learning can assist. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, we actually had uh, Bob Work came and talked about that with us rather over at uh, University of Texas, Austin, uh, a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. I want to ask you a question. You've had a lot of experience um, with the Navy, but also with helping the DOD think about this problem. Um, in terms of the Army, what are, what are we missing? What is the Army not thinking about enough? You know, I don't have that much visibility, quite frankly, into what the Army is doing. I am mindful that the Army is leading the way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, with um, using uh, using AI and machine learning to have autonomous convoys, and it is definitely the low-hanging fruit and something easy to do. And when you go back to man-machine teaming, I'm mindful that the Army is uh, leading all services in uh, wearable devices and ectoskeletons and, and, first of all, lightening the load uh, for the soldier, and then also giving uh, him or her more capability through technology. So I honestly don't know if the Army is missing anything. I think Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Dr. Hicks, has in her Senate testimony for confirmation said that for her, AI and autonomy are the two most important things to the Department of Defense. So she's saying all the right things and, and she's certainly leaning in. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Honorable Bob Work. He and Eric Schmidt co-authored the um, National Security uh, AI report. And you know they talk a lot about how we will lose tomorrow's wars. And oh, by the way, Dr. Hicks mentioned the Jake, the Joint AI Center, as being the node where all this comes together with all the services. So I guess just taking a stab at your question, having spent all the years I did on active duty, and you know with the term that sometimes the one service thinks the other is better than the others, I'm not sanguine uh, that all the services are sharing their best practices with AI and machine learning. It's like, okay, we got this. And uh, I don't know, if I, if I were king for a day in the world, we're flat, I'd say, uh, and maybe the Jake is the place for the services to share their examples. I think, I think the Mad Scientist Forum is a, is a great place where hopefully people in the Army will listen to someone from the Navy and say, oh, we never thought of that, or you know, vice versa. So, um, so yeah, I don't think, I, I don't have a specific that you're missing, except that my gut tells me 
we could share more amongst all the services. No, that's always fantastic advice. I want to I want to pivot just a little bit. And you actually came out with just a couple of weeks ago, really, uh, a new novel, Fire and Ice. Uh, it's in your Rick Holden uh, series, a thriller series. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and what made you want to keep going on uh, on that series? And what can the Army think about when it comes to what you've written? So, yeah, my, my passion is writing my my. Uh, extreme passion is writing fiction. And, and what I do, Luke, is I think about things that worry me uh, about the services and, and like what could happen, what could go wrong, and then build that into a, that's kind of my high concept and build it into a scenario. So if you don't mind me going back to an earlier book in the, in that Rick Holden series, um, The Coronado Conspiracy, since we were talking about the Triton and the Global Hawk, I always wondered um, what would happen if if someone hacked into a global hawk and uh, made it think it was seeing something that it wasn't seeing and, and, and what would, what could happen and what could an enemy do to do that? And we know that uh, there's extreme cyber hacking by our adversaries, but that's kind of how I evolved the story. So fast forwarding to a uh, fire and ice. Um, I look at the Soviet, I'll say this word carefully meddling uh, in Eastern Europe and I, I see how dependent uh, Europe is on, um, on Russian energy. So I asked myself, well, what would happen if Russia uh, turned off the energy spigot to hold Europe hostage? And so I evolved the scenario where um, it's in the country of Belarus, uh, people in Belarus uh, uh, mad at their government, they're attacking the oil pipelines, uh, Belarus can't stop them, the Soviets uh, move in and uh, take over the country to, to protect their money. And so the lessons for the, I guess, for the army specifically are, um, you know, you all are involved 24 seven now. We, we have troops in Ukraine uh, waiting for Russia to do something and they are doing things that are they're not so great. But I, I guess it's just to think out of the box and say, these people don't have our best interests at heart. What might they do next? And uh, again, some of the things they've done have surprised us um, and we probably don't want to be surprised. So yeah, the lessons for the army from this fiction. And again, this was a very uh, army centric book um, because of where it occurs is uh, it's a new cold war. Uh, Europe is the playing field. How do we need to posture ourselves to um, uh, to prevail? And to your point, P.W. Singer and, and August Cole have talked a lot about this recently in terms of uh, what fictional intelligence can mean for us, Ficken, and um, what, what, how can it help shape our thinking uh, or change our thinking and change our paradigms on those? So thank you for that. Yeah, and and not to sorry, not to overstate the thing about fiction, but um, and again, I'm probably since I do work for the Navy still, uh, and not uh, like P.W. Singer and August Cole who don't, or not like Admiral Jim Stavridis who doesn't. I'm maybe a little more constrained in what I write because everything I write has to pass policy and security view, which is fine. But I think we all have written uh, in, our, in our service lives, whether uniform or civilian, we've written reports and white papers and studies, and we send those through our chain of command. And you know, if it's too wild or too scandalous, that's not something some people like to see. Not that everyone's in the chain of command is a Luddite, but it's just there's a comfort level. And, and you know, you don't want some, you don't want to sound like a heretic. So 
fiction provides that vehicle where you really can think out of the box and, and come up with some what ifs that wouldn't find a comfort zone, let's say, in a normal chain of command. I hope I'm not overstating that. No, that, that that's great. And I, I think we should stick with the uh, writing topic and delve into this a little bit more. You, you kind of mentioned or you hinted at in your the answer to your first question about this next question I'm going to ask you. What advice do you have for that next generation of writers who are coming up? I mean, what advice would you give them about writing and thinking about warfare and national security? Yeah, no, thanks for that. Well, I I can use myself as an example because that's what I know best. I mentioned Law of the Sea and was something I became very interested in. I was passionate about it. In fact, uh, Admiral Jim Stavridis and I, our first article about Law of the Sea was in the Naval Law Review. I eventually did two books on the Law of the Sea, I had several dozen articles written on the Law of the Sea before I did my first book. So I can't tell you uh, how many um, military professionals, former military professionals have said, hey, I want to write a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And that's a prodigious undertaking. So the advice I give to all uh, military officers, particularly junior officers, is um, get your feet wet. Get your feet wet with articles in professional journals like uh, Parameters, like uh, Joint Forces Quarterly, like the Navy Pubs. Get some feedback from editors. See what you're doing well. See what you're not doing so well. And and come up with, you know, a a bit of a style and a bit of who you are. And uh, that helps in many ways. A, it helps you become a better writer. And B, it shows um, an editor uh, at, a, at a publishing house or an agent that you've got some street creds that you actually can write and get yourself published. So I guess my, you know, my, my strong advice is to start slow and, uh, you know, don't swing for the fences with an 80,000 uh, word book if you haven't done some articles and other things first. And then the other thing is, um, is write what you're passionate about. Uh, a lot of people, you know, read magazines and they try to find the trend in there, like, oh, what's everyone talking about now? It's cyber or it's this or that. And then they write an article. And by the time they write it and submit it and it gets looked at, that's not the issue anymore. So just just write what you're what you're passionate about. No, I think that's sage advice. And transitioning now to kind of our rapid fire questions. Um, these are questions we like to ask all our guests to get a better understanding of who they are. Um, the first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? And I think we might have an idea. Yeah, well, it, it is uh, big data, AI and machine learning. And uh, well, let's go back. Uh, let's go back to um, AlphaGo, uh, which defeated the South Korean champion. Uh, Lee Sun-do, and then uh, they took it to China and they beat the Chinese champion. And in the open media, the people Re- People's Republic of China said this was our Sputnik moment. And China is investing hundreds of billions in AI and machine learning to, number one, control their people with the facial recognition and the social credits and all that. And Russia doesn't have as big a budget. Uh, By the way, the GDP of Russia is now less than that of Italy, Uh, but they are using AI machine learning in the same kind of nefarious ways to control their people, uh, to attack uh, the West, et cetera, et cetera. So they both feel they have a compelling reason to move forward with AI and machine learning uh, for internal and external reasons. So they're they're on a mission. We say, yeah, AI and machine learning are, you know, they're important and, and they're good. And we ought to do something about that. But uh, people aren't um, 
you know, banging down the doors yet to do that. So, uh, you know, I think that's one of the uh, one of the reasons the uh, report from the um, uh, National Commission, National Security Commission on on AI, was so important and so telling, uh, because it did point out that uh, we won't lose today's war because of AI and machine learning. But if we don't catch up and actually get ahead, we will lose tomorrow's war. So that's those are the trends that do keep me up at night. But again, no surprise based on what we've talked about so far. Uh, no, absolutely. And that, that's a, an unsurprising, but a very important answer. And um, what is something about you that you're willing to share with our audience that most people might not know? Yeah, well, my life's kind of an open, you know, as a writer, your life's kind of an open book. You, you write and you have you have a website. And so there's not too many um, too many secrets. So it's a little bit of a stretch to, um, to find that. But I will tell your listeners that early in my career, I had... Uh, two helicopter crashes, not my fault. They didn't take out of my pay. The, the helicopters failed in both cases. And, um, you know, I got back to flying. Everything was fine, but kind of beat my body into submission. So I was a very passionate tennis player. I mean, tennis was my life, my wife would tell you. And eventually with, um, with the bones kind of creaking and wound up with a lot of metal in me and, um, you know, couldn't play tennis anymore. So I've got, well, I got to do something to occupy my time. So I started to write more. So it goes back to that saying, um, you make plans and God laughs. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that if my body were uh, in primo condition, I'd probably still be playing tennis and not writing. So, um, so yeah, you, you got to be, you got to be able to pivot and, and do something different to, to scratch your itch. I don't think too many people can say they've survived a couple of helicopter crashes. So definitely something interesting. And 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 we got your writing out of it. So I guess we'll take silver linings where we can. So uh, finally, uh, this this tells us a lot about our guests. What is your favorite movie? Oh, gosh. E- easy question. Uh, and, I've, and I've told people this. Um, it's the movie, uh, The Right Stuff, uh, which was based on the Tom Wolfe book. And the reason it is, is, uh, you know, Luke, I grew up during the Cold War and the space race. And I mean, the, everything stopped at home or at school when there was a, uh, an astronaut launched into space. And that movie just brings that era to life so compellingly and how it became a, uh, a national phenomena. And one thing um, in the book, but not in the movie, although the movie hints at it. Deke Slayton was the astronaut who was like the quietest guy and they could never get him to say anything. And, and it, you know how important it was in those days for the astronauts to speak to the public. Well, they were at some kind of interview and all the other astronauts were holding forth and, and they finally said, Deke, you know, say something to the people. They were at a, a factory uh, that was manufacturing rocket parts. And he said, uh, do good work. And the next factory visit they had, there were banners that were 50 feet by 30 feet that said, do good work. So I I think it'd be tough to find anything in America today where there was that much of a national passion. And I think the movie was brilliant because it captured that uh, in a way that I don't, I don't think anybody else could. So yeah, that's my, that's my fave. That's an awesome answer. And I love it. And I, I do hope we get back to that in a sense, uh, enjoyed being able to show my kids, uh, Falcon heavy landings and things like that. And and I hope one day we're kind of all crowd around, I guess it won't be a TV set, but whatever, whatever AR or VR we're using to watch the next, uh, next moon landing or Mars landing. There you go. And, uh, where can folks follow you at? Oh, yeah. Uh, great. So if you just Google my name, it'll pull up the top link will be uh, George Galarisi, military author. It'll take you to my website. 
And, uh, you know, as a writer, um, other than writing, which is my passion, I love connecting with readers. So if someone goes on my website, uh, there's a way you can connect with me. You go put your name in and address. And, and, and I, you know, I love connecting with people, whether they say, hey, I've got an idea for a book. What do you think? Or um, can you tell me more about this book or that book or this uh, writing? And uh, so, yeah, that's the just just Google my name. It'll pull up my website and, and we can go a while from there. Well, thank you so much, George, for making the time uh, coming to talk to us. Thank you for for everything you've done for the program and uh, everything you continue to do for the DOD. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And, and, and again, I appreciate all the work you all do to um, keep the mad scientist community alive. I will tell you the um, mad scientist event uh, you all had in Washington, D.C. several years ago that I attended. Uh, I, this still rings for me where the, the chief of staff of the Army at the time, General uh, Milley, said, um, the reason we call it mad scientists is if we call it mad generals, it would scare people. So um, that, that's my, my biggest takeaway from that event. That is, that is still one of our trademark events uh, where General Milley came uh, and, and got to interact with folks like Max Brooks. So exciting stuff. Thank you all again for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, George Galderisi, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.